wondered what it's like to face the complex world of disability insurance claims as a physician? Meet Edward Dabdaub, the founding attorney at Dabdaub Law Firm. Eddie began his legal career working as a law clerk during law school at a disability insurance firm, and he would go on to build his own law firm for the sole purpose of handling disability insurance claims. He spent his entire legal career helping people get paid disability insurance benefits. Today, his firm represents all types of physicians across the country. Eddie specializes in physician disability insurance claims, appeals, and litigation. Eddie has represented many physicians and gained a deep understanding of the occupational duties of various medical specialties, and he's applied that knowledge to successfully obtain disability insurance benefits on behalf of physicians. He recently won a case on behalf of a liver transplant surgeon who had own occupation disability insurance. After suffering a fall, the doctor could no longer perform liver transplant, but continued to perform other types of surgeries. His insurance company denied his total disability claim on the grounds that he had more than one occupation, because prior to his disability, he performed other types of surgeries when not doing liver transplants. Eddie successfully argued before the federal court that his occupation was that of a liver transplant surgeon. Once he became unable to perform liver transplant, he was totally disabled from his own occupation despite continuing to do other surgeries. With experience litigating in both federal and state courts, Edward Dabdaub is a true hero for those seeking the disability insurance benefits they deserve. So if you or someone you know is navigating the challenging world of disability insurance, don't miss the opportunity to connect with Edward Dabdaub and his dedicated team at Dabdaub Law Firm. They've got your back. Stay tuned for another fascinating episode of the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. And remember, when life throws its toughest challenges your way, Edward Dabdaub and his firm are here to fight for your rights. Visit longtermdisability.net to learn more. What can healthcare learn from the hospitality industry? Let's find out from the former dean of the number one hospitality college in the country. Hey, this is Brad Block, host of The Physician's Guide to Doctoring. This is a personal and professional development podcast for physicians where we have experts on the show that try to teach us everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. So we have a special treat today on the podcast. We're, we're interviewing Dr. Stowe Shoemaker about something that's very near and dear to my heart, as some of you might know from listening to prior episodes. I chair the Patient Experience Committee at my practice and actually founded the Patient Experience Committee at my, my practice because the patient experience and looking at things from a hospitality perspective are something that we're really behind the eight ball in medicine. It's great that we've got Dr. Shoemaker on, on the podcast today because he's the, de- he's the dean or until recently was the dean of the William F. Hara College of Hospitality and held the Andrew and Peggy Chung Dean's Chair at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. The College of Hospitality is currently ranked number one for hospitality in the U.S. and number two in the world. And he recently co-wrote the book, Hospitable Healthcare, Just What the Patient Ordered. So from 1996 to to 2020, he served as a member of the executive education faculty of the School of Hotel Administration at Cornell, which is where he got his PhD, teaching courses in strategy, service operations, strategic pricing, revenue management, strategic marketing, customer loyalty, and consumer behavior. And he has applied that knowledge of hospitality to healthcare. To help improve patient satisfaction, he held a joint appointment at MD Anderson Cancer Center from 2010 to 2012 and worked with Memorial Healthcare Systems in Houston. 
And in Las Vegas, he's worked with Mountain View Hospital and is currently introducing hospitality principles to the curriculum of their medical school. So, Dr. Shoemaker, thank you so much for being on the show. It's great to be on the show. Thank you very much. And congratulations on being head of your patient experience at your practice. Thank you. Thank you. Even though I am a firm believer in this, I'm going to come to it from a little place of, of skepticism because comparing the hospitality industry to healthcare doesn't work in terms of economics, right? We have fixed, a fixed, basically a fixed revenue stream in terms of how much we can bill, right? Like I can't negotiate higher prices from a healthcare, health insurance company because I have a nicer lobby. A hotel can do that. A restaurant can do that but we can't do that. So those economics don't really work out. On top of the fact, with some of the hospitals are already up to the, their gills in patients. Some of my colleagues getting an appointment with a primary care physician can take months. So if you're the practice that's spending money on improving hospitality, but you're already full of patients, like how, does the, how do you justify the economics of that? So coming from that place, of skepticism, how, how would you answer that? That's a great question. And the way that I would answer that is pretty much the way that I've been answering in the hospitality industry. Because in the hospitality industry, especially in Las Vegas, you know, in the early days, everybody was like, why do we need to customer loyalty? We already have so many customers. People are just coming to the door. So what I argue is that now that information is so readily available for patients, they can go online, they can find doctors. And so my belief is that we need to provide great customer care, patient care. We need to make patients feel like loved family members because what they're going to do is they're going to tell their friends, they're going to tell others. And when we look at hospitals, because hospitals are based on, you know, their age cap scores and the value-based purchasing. So it's imperative for hospitals to improve their age cap scores so they can increase their amount of reimbursement. And if we look at the law, the lifetime value of the customer. So in our book, we give an example of the lifetime value of the customer. You have a patient that comes to you for X. Usually it may say it's the mom. Well, now all of a sudden the mom has a great experience with you. Now they're going to start bringing their husband. Then they're going to start bringing their kids. And over time, you're going to get to know more about that patient. So maybe you're doing less patients, but you're giving more value, you're taking more of the patient's wallet, right? So as a patient, I may go to you for one thing, another doctor for another thing. But if I really love you, I'm going to give you more of my medical spend. I'm going to give that hospital more of that medical spend. So over the lifetime, that patient is going to be worth more to you. And they're going to spread more word of mouth and they're going to start killing their friends. And that will give you more patients. It'll give you more patients into the hospital. And as, as you improve your scores and your patient satisfaction scores, hospitals will more likely to want to work with you. They might pay you incentives to bring patients to their hospital, right? Because you're going to help them improve their HCAP scores. So I think we have to think of it in terms of the long-term, the lifetime value, the customer. And because hospitals are always competing for patients, you become or your physicians become the ones that can bring, help them improve their HCAP scores. It's not as much about, you know, filling your waiting rooms now. It's more about filling your waiting rooms five years from now and 10 years from now. It's more long range thinking. Like my hospital recently got bought by NYU. 
And then there was down the road, there was a Sears that closed, a Lord and Taylor that closed. Those humongous buildings were then bought by them. And I think they're able to do that because they can see down the road, like that they're just going to continue to grow because they bring with them the reputation of NYU. And so patients are going to continue and continue to come. However, if they don't pay attention to hospitality, making their waiting rooms welcoming, making sure their staff treats the patients well, they're going to see a bunch of gigantic empty buildings. So they need to stay on top of that. So it's not for like the short-term growth, but it's more like the long-term growth. And very much so because you look what's happening with Walgreens, with all the drugstore chains. They're all adding basically care practices with nurse practitioners. So they're filling that. So if I'm a patient, I go, I could see you. Well, I'm just going to go to Walgreens because I can get in, I can see the doctor and they're going to cure me, right? And then, so that's one thing. So you want to avoid that. Another thing that's happening is companies are going to start developing their own medical practices. And so they're going to start hiring doctors. So you can envision a day where a union, in fact, this is already happening in Las Vegas, where the culinary union is basically starting building medical clinics and they're staffing it with their own doctors. And basically it becomes a one-stop shop. So now I'm a union worker. I can go to see my primary care or I can just go to the union shop where everything is taken care of and I'm getting great patient experience. I can get in when I want to. And so it's really a matter of taking control of your future. I think what's important to understand is that Oftentimes, when people think of hospitality and healthcare, they think of, oh, we're just going to go after the full payer, the self-payer. We're going to offer four seasons type service. And what we really tried to stress in our book is that you can go to La Quinta, Hampton Inn, and have a great experience and pay a lot less. You can go to Four Seasons and have a great experience. So our book is really written, no matter how your patient is paying, we're giving you a model or methodology to provide a great experience for the Medicare patient as well as the self-payer patient. And that's what we're excited about them. You decide how you want to build out that lobby. Does that lobby need to be the Four Seasons or the Four Seasons landscaping company outside of Philadelphia? Exactly. Exactly. And But it's more, it's not so that you can, it doesn't cost a lot to make a beautiful lobby. Think of going to a Laquita where we can make the opportunities for the patients to really make patients feel like loved family members is to really focus on the things that are most important to them. And when we wrote this book, we didn't want to be just two guys with an opinion. We wanted to go out and say, what's really happening? What's the landscape? So we essentially did, re you know, we're I'm an academic, my co-author has his PhD. And we said, well, let's go out and let's find out what really the landscape is. So we started off, we did the in-depth interviews with people at the Mayo Clinic, with people at Rich Carlton. So we talked to Ginger Health. We talked to healthcare companies. We also talked to hospitality companies to find out really what are they doing that's unique, that provides a great experience and, again, makes patients feel like loved family members. And then we went out and we surveyed 1,200 people across the United States, all who had either been to a doctor's office visited a walk-in clinic, been to a hospital, eaten in a restaurant or stayed in a hotel to find out really where there were differences between healthcare and hospitality. And then looking at all this data and doing all this research, we then decided, okay, 
what's been great about hospitality and can we come up with a model that can be easily adapted to healthcare? But isn't beauty in the eye of the beholder, right? Like I would think that what's important to one person might not be important to the next. Like one person might be like, listen, I'm willing to wait a really long time as long as the doctor spends a long time with me. Whereas someone else might say, listen, I got to get in and get out. I don't care if they spend five minutes with me as long as I'm not spending forever in their waiting room. Does it or are there some consistencies there that you saw time and time again on what is important to people? Excuse me. Well, I think you bring up a great point. And early you asked about, do we really care about long term? We already have enough customers. Why would we want to do more, have more customers? Well, as you start to develop your customers and you know more and more about your customers, those customers or those patients who just want to come in and get out, you know those who want to have a longer time. So we basically start to then to customize our stay on a per patient basis. And that's what we've done in hospitality. You know, we have loyalty programs in the hospitality industry, right? And everybody's, you know, Hyatt, Marriott, they all have programs. Well, the reason they have those programs is then they can keep track of the, their customer's behavior, and then they can customize the stay for each person. We argue in the book that we should start thinking about having some type of loyalty program for our patients. And I've done research where basically, and we talk about this in the book, where, where we work with a company that basically said, look, instead of giving you a health travel, a health savings account, we'll give you a health travel account. And every time you do the things you're supposed to do, keep your weight low, take your medicine, all those kinds of things, we'll put in travel credits for you. And then when you get ready to go on vacation, you can take those travel credits and use for a discount in hotels and restaurants. And what we found in this research is people would be willing to identify themselves, be willing to track their behaviors in order to get these rewards. So we think in healthcare, we should think about providing some kind of program that allows our patients to identify themselves. And then we can begin to customize their stay or to customize their visit. And then they'll overall have a great experience with us. Now, that being said, there are kind of five things that we found that are critical no matter how much you're paying. And I can share those with you. I'm a professor, so I'm always used to stopping and waiting for questions. So the first thing that what we found in our research, and we created what we called sort of the hospitality deficit. In other words, what was important to hospitality people? What was important to healthcare? And how did hospitality and healthcare perform on those important features? So for instance, the first thing that was really critical for healthcare patients was knowing and understanding the cost of the service provided. So we had questions that said, the invoice and bill I receive is easy to understand. I know how much I have to pay for the service before I receive. Wow. I mean, that's going to be impossible. And I mean, listen, if you want to order an MRI, right, and you want to shop around to find which one is going to give you the best, lowest cost for your MRI, I can understand that. But if a patient comes to see me and they think that might have a sinus infection, and it turns out it's something more complicated than that, the way that billing services work is it's more expensive if it's more complicated. Or if they come in with a sinus infection and they also want to talk to me about their dizziness, am I going to turn around and say, 
listen, if we're going to talk about your Disneyness, that's going to be an extra 60 bucks. And I might be able to do that if I knew what their deductible was, if I knew how much they paid for their deductible, if I knew when our billing department was going to bill them maybe before the cardiologist that they saw two weeks ago. Because if they get to them before us, then that goes into their deductible and maybe they've paid off their deductible. So there are so many moving parts to be able to tell someone about price transparency. Like, how do we possibly accomplish that? Well, I think that's the challenge. And the good doctors will figure out how to do it. Or what's going to happen is companies are going to come in and they're going to say, I will take over your practice. I will take over all those billing issues, right? And then I will negotiate. I will have so much debt on each of your patients and I will have a keep track of what their deductible is to date. And then I will start giving them price transparency and you will be, as a physician, will be giving away some of that control because doctors, patients will want to see that. And I think there, it is a challenge. But at the end of the day, you know, if you're working with certain providers, you can present information in such a way that says, okay, it seems like you're going to, you need an MRI. And typically an MRI will cost X amount, $100. Now, depending upon your deductible, I'm not sure how much that will pay, but the maximum you would end up paying is $100. At least I have an idea. And then we'd say, be sure to remember that because you're going to have an MRI, if you're nervous, you might be subscribed some medication to relax you. So that's going to cost you an additional X amount of money. But just letting them be aware of these costs and saying these are the retail costs, that's going to be the maximum you have to pay, but it'll probably be less, but be prepared that this is the cost. Right now, you have no idea what this thing is going to cost, right? I went in for a colonoscopy. Also, the person says it's going to be X amount for the colonoscopy. Three days later, I get a $1,000 bill from the anesthesiologist because the gentleman doing the colonoscopy never said, oh, by the way, we're going to put you to sleep first. If we as physicians don't figure out how to control for that, there will be companies who will come in and say, we can take care of that for you. Who will? Yeah. I mean, that seems like it might be a place where AI might be able to accomplish a lot of that work. You know, you ask a question and it kind of crawls through information in order to spit it out. Also, we might be able to give people a reasonable range when they come in. This is what your deductible is. These are the most commonly billed visits and procedures, and this is the range of costs. So we don't tell them how much it's going to cost them out of pocket. We tell them a range, which is at least something, which is better than nothing. And if you have patients that you're seeing on a regular basis, right? And when before they arrive, one of the things you could do is send them an email saying, we're excited about your coming visit. We're prepared to look at you. But in order to keep our record straight, can you please tell us if you've had any other procedures, any other things done within the last month or two months so that we can keep your records up to date? And then we'll have an idea that, okay, wow, they went ahead and had an MRI, so their deduction is going to be lower. So that gives us at least a way to speak about it. Yeah, and I think the key is, you know, if all of it was easy, everybody would be doing it. It would have happened already, yeah. So knowing how much it costs is just one thing. Another thing that's really important to the customers where we found the deficit was customer appreciation. The provider appreciates my business. Most physicians, they say, after they do whatever they're going to do to you, they just kind of walk out the door. And then the nurse comes in and says, Go over here to check out. There's never, thank you very much for our business. Right. 
when we stay in hospitality, you stay at a property or you go to a restaurant, you often get an email the next day saying, thank you for your business. Hope we did well, right? So that's a simple thing to do. Another deficit we found that was very important was reception. The arrival experience is welcoming. The environment is welcoming. The people I interact with make me feel welcome. The people I interact with are eager to serve me, right? So you think about, I may not know what it costs, so that may make me crazy, but boy, they thank me for my business. When I walk in, they know I'm, I've come in. They welcome me. They don't just say ID, medical record. They say, Dr. Shoemaker, thank you for coming in. We've been expecting you. I don't know about we've been expecting you because often patients come in late. And when they come in late, if you say we've been expecting you, I think it might not come off so well. But I understand what you're saying. Actually, for, with regards to making it more welcoming. I have some questions about that because I don't know how to do that. How do I make our waiting room welcoming? Like I understand like the staff, right? You know, they need to make eye contact. They need to smile. They need to, you know, not be all business. Try to, you know, be as personable as you can. But, you know, like the aesthetics of the place, the check-in process, how do we make that more hotel-like? So in the book, we talk about the use of colors. So think about what's the color of the walls. If you're staying at a Hampton Inn and you go down for the free breakfast, it's usually painted in yellow because yellows, well, I'll wake you up, get you started for the day. In the evening, more subdued colors. So I think part of it is we use colors that don't make it so, seem so sterile, that make it that's obsessive warm. We use maybe lighting, how lighting works. While we're on color, what color? Because healthcare, I would imagine, would be... the end of another busy day. You just saw 20, 30 patients, maybe more. Instead of heading home for dinner with your spouse or playing with your kids, you now begin your night job, charting. Charting is critical for patient care, billing, and medical legal liability, but it steals our focus from our patients, eats away at our time with our families, and keeps us up at night. The burden of always having another chart to complete drains all of us. Freed listens, prepares your notes, and writes patient instructions for you. Charting is done before your patient walks out of the room. Wait, because it gets better. Freed learns your style over time. It's AI, just like a human scribe would, except it will never quit on you. Freed is loved by 3,000 plus clinicians from every specialty. It's HIPAA compliant, takes 30 seconds to learn, and costs only $99 a month. You can try Freed for free, right now by going to freed.ai, F-R-E-E-D.ai. Listeners of the Physician's Guide to Doctoring can use the code PGD50 for $50 off the first month. Consistent, right? Like you'd want the same calming color and we're all going to end up choosing the same, you know, Sherman Williams calming green or whatever it is. Like what's the right color for healthcare? So I can't, answer that because I haven't done the research to show that. Okay. But what I would, what I would recommend is that if you have a physician, if you have a, you know, your office, what I would suggest you do is take some, you know, if you, in my book, we have different colors that represent different areas. What I would do is I would bring in a group of your patients and say, Hey, we want to kind of create a welcoming environment in our waiting area. 
here's some different color patches we're thinking about. When you see this color, what does this color mean to you? When you see this color, how does this color make you feel, right? And bring some of your patients that you, you're close to, that you know them well, and say, help us design a waiting room that's going to make you feel comfortable. Like a focus group. You take one wall and you just start painting it. An accent wall, yeah. An accent wall. Tell me what you like. Because then it's not us deciding what our color is. It's the patients. It's the patients. They're going to go for They're going to go for sexy, sexy red. I know it. I mean, I think the other thing, too, is, you know, scent, right? I mean, hotels, you walk into many hotels and they all have a different scent. So what's the scent of? Healthcare? We Can we create a nice kind of scent? You got to be wary just because of like airway disorder. Like, you know, I'm an ear, nose, and throat doctor. We've got allergy patients. Like you've got airway disorders. So, you know, you got to be wary about. Maybe we don't have a scent. What kind of music do we play? You know, typically in a lot of waiting rooms I've been to, they all have like HTTV and they're just these big TVs are just blasting. It's not relaxing at all, right? And they just put that up there because they don't want anything political. I thought about this and I thought like, what can we have? I was like, the Discovery Channel, the History Channel. Like we see a lot of kids too. So the Discovery Channel, sometimes they have like sharks attacking a seal. Yeah, it's going to give the kids nightmares, right? Like, or the History Channel, you're going to have like some Civil War reenactment. I, I've found that HGTV as like bland and like the fact that it's everywhere, that just seems to be the one that's, you're right, just not offensive. But maybe the thing to think about is you know, how many patients are typically in a waiting room at a given time? And could you have iPads for your patients when they check in? You give them an iPad, a headset that's been sterilized. And they sit and they watch whatever they want. And then you have kind of soft music playing for people who want to read. They can read. For people who want to watch something, it's right there on their iPad. Then they give it back when they check in. And then you've kind of created a calming area where everybody does what they want to see and do in a way that adds some, some semblance of calm. So far, we've got price transparency. We've got they want to be thanked. They want to feel welcome, right? What else? They were, I think there were two more principles, right? They, the other one is the service logistics. They can make an appointment easily. The check-in process is easy. So you think about in hospitality, you know, we go in and we can go online and book our hotel reservation, right? Why don't we take a look at how do we make it easy for our patients to go online and, and book their reservation, right? <clears throat> now, there always will be some patients who want to call direct, right? But a fair amount of patients will probably want to just go online, especially with the younger generation, right? So what you've done then is by allowing multiple ways to make a reservation, you've allowed that patient who, who's very computer literate to go on make the reservation and get off. You, the person who isn't computer literate and really wants some tender loving care, now they're able to spend more time with the receptionist because that receptionist is not trying to answer a thousand calls coming in. And we've done that in hospitality. Yeah, we've had a lot of success in our practice with that. And one thing that I saw was the number of patients that would wake me up in the middle of the night with like an emergency dropped precipitously because instead of them being like, oh my God, I think I've got something going on, they would go online and just make an appointment for the next day. So they were able to go back to sleep without worrying, knowing that they were going to get seen the next day instead of feeling like they needed to call in the middle of the night because it was some, I know, it felt like it was an emergency. It's great all around. 
And that also offloads the phones, you know, if they're able to do it online. Yeah, absolutely. And then making the check is check-in process easy. I mean, one of the things that we think about, and we talk about this in the book, is for the patients who come in all the time, do they have a separate check-in line than the people who don't come in as often, right? Do you think if you had like a credit card swipe like you do on for airlines, like if you just check in, right? You don't have to interact with anyone. You've got just carry-on luggage. You're going to swipe your credit card. You're going to get your boarding pass and you're going to go. Or I mean, I might be dating myself. I think people often have it on their phone now. They don't even, right? They don't even need to do that. So it's actually my wife normally normally handles that stuff. I don't remember the last time I've flown by myself. So the question is like, if you were to do that, does that really separate the humanity too much, right? Or do people want that like high touch, you know, smiling, welcoming service where someone's checking them in? I, I think it depends on the patient. So I went to the eye doctor yesterday and they sent me a note two days before I was coming to say, we're looking, you know, just confirming your appointment. Please fill out some basic information. Here's a, and they sent me a, you know, one of those little QR codes. And then they said, when you arrive, there'll be a kiosk that you can check in. So I walked up to the kiosk. I put in my ID, showed them the QR code. I checked right in and it just said, please take a seat. Someone will be right with you, right? Another person came in, didn't know about the QR code. So now that person at the front desk can say, welcome, let me help you get checked in, right? <clears throat> so if that, if I didn't have that QR code, I'd be standing there waiting, going, while the person in front of me is asking a zillion questions. So what we're doing is we're allowing, we're giving the patient control over how they want to be served, Right. And the person who sees us personally, we then we know they want love, right? If we don't do that, then we're just, as an employee, we're just looking at the line and our goal is to get the people through the line as quickly as possible. Then we do this service to everybody. But by giving the customer, the patient, the choice on what they're looking for, it makes it much easier. Have you seen, without throwing anyone under the bus, have you seen any like swings and misses in the healthcare industry where someone was really either trying in earnest, making a a real attempt at the patient experience or seemingly just to pay lip service to it, where they were like trying to, you know, improve it and it just didn't fall right? Yes. I can give you a great example. I won't say the hospital system, but typically when this happens, it's when a doctor or an administrator has an idea and implements the idea without talking to patients and without talking to staff. So in restaurants, one of the things that restaurants do when they're very busy is they give you a little beeper that you can go walk away and when your time is up, it, it beeps. <clears throat> so this hospital system said, oh my God, that's what we need to do in the waiting room. We'll just give everybody beepers. So they went out and they bought all these beepers, right? Never talking to patients. Well, when I came in to do some research and I said, do you ever use the beepers talking to patients? They said, oh no, because we're afraid they, don't, they won't work outside the waiting room. When we talked to staff, we said, what do you do about the beepers? And they were like, oh, you know, the batteries always die and we can never get more batteries. And so they just sit in the box. And so when we talked to patients and thought, of what is it's really going to create a great relationship for you in the waiting area? 
And that's when we redesigned the whole waiting area. We added comfortable chairs. We changed the color. We, you know, put some music in. They didn't mind waiting then. We had people go up and talk to them. By understanding the patients first, understanding the staff, and then developing the idea is what worked. That's something that we do in our committee, actually, is we have a, each time we have a meeting, we have another staff member from a different part of the practice to try and get their ideas, try and get their input, right? Like if you fail to get the input of those with the boots on the ground, it's not going to work. And so that's how we get some of our ideas is just the staff. They've got, they're full of great ideas. They are the ones who run into these problems every day. So if they said, you know, it would be great beepers, then it might work out. But if it's coming from above without that, you know, real world experience, it might not, might not work. Cider house rules, right? He who makes the rules doesn't live in the cider house. I think the other thing is that what we encourage our physicians to do, and this was our fifth thing, was service assessment and recovery. You know, we encourage physicians and to walk around and say to the staff, hey, what are, you, what are our patients saying about us? What are you hearing? You kind of just mentioned it. But not just do it, you know, doing it on a regular basis when you're making your rounds. Say, what's one idea that you heard what did, that the patient said to you today? Right. And so one of the things that is it was a deficit is in hospitality, we're very good about solving problems and getting paid customers to tell us about the problems. Healthcare, not so much. And part of it is I think it's the fear. Oh, I don't want to say anything bad about it to the doctor. But providing an environment that says a complaint is a gift. We want to hear what's not going well. And guys into your healthcare system has a hundred percent guarantee. That if you're not happy with your, the service you received, you know, they will basically reimburse a lot of your costs. And so creating that environment that says, yes, we want to hear if something's not right. We want to hear how we can be better. Got it. So providing a mechanism for feedback, not just from the staff, but from the patients as well. Exactly. Exactly. And we recommend that all the time. And we have some great examples you know, there's one question that we've been using in hospitality forever that creates what we call the problem impact tree. And we ask this one question and it's like four, four options. Did you have any problems to, in your, during your stay? If you had a problem, did you report it? If you had a problem and reported it, how was it, was it handled in a friendly manner? If you had a problem or reported, was it handled in a front, unfriendly manner? And from that, we can see what percentage complained what percentage of those that complained had a problem complained? Of those that complained, how many of them felt they received a satisfactory reply? And then you can start doing strategies to kind of fix that issue. But we don't do that in healthcare. We recommend you should. Okay. So we have time for one more. If you have one more high return on investment thing that either in a hospital setting or outpatient practice, wherever you want to put your focus, that we can start doing, that our physicians can start doing to improve our hospitality, improve our patient satisfaction? So I think the key thing it would be is to one, is to think of your patients as loved family members. How would I, this is not a patient, this is a loved family member. What kind of service would I give to the loved family? You have clearly not been to my house on Thanksgiving. 
I'm not sure that that's the type of thing that we, no, 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 I'm just kidding. We get along. But uh, I mean, I can see. I can, right? well, that's where we call it not just a family, a love family. Member, yes. but a love family. <laughs> I think that's the critical thing. And I think the other thing that could you could really do is that in services, it's often hard for the customer to determine if they got a great, if they had great service, right? Because it's intangible. So in the services literature, we have what we call the Raider system, which is reliability, assurance, tangible, empathy, and responsiveness. So what I would encourage you to do is sit down with, is the first thing to do is map out the patient journey. And at every time they have an interaction with a staff member, say, how do we show we're reliable during this interaction? How do we help tangibilize it? How do we show empathy? How do we show we're responsive? And what we did at MD Anderson and Memorial Hermann was we figured out how do we make at each point. For example, when people are getting ready to go in for their contrasts, we gave them warm blankets. That made it tangible. We were empathetic by saying, oh, yes, we know that there's nothing worse than sitting where your contrast is going on. So we've made sure to not only give you the warm blanket, but we're going to come and check on you throughout your time. We showed we're responsible. But when they walk in the door, we're not like medical record number insurance. We're like, we planned for the visit. So all those kinds of things. And again, we have some examples in the book that break that down on every area. And that book, again, is Hospitable Healthcare, Just What the Patient Ordered. Dr. Stowe Shoemaker, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. It's great to be on the call. Before we go, be sure to check out the incredible work of Edward Dabdab and Dabdab Law Firm. For more information and expert guidance on disability insurance claims, visit their website, longtermdisability.net. Thanks for listening. I have a favor to ask. You listened to the episode until the end, which means you either fell asleep or you really liked the episode. So please share it or like it or comment on a social media post or write us a five-star review, something. It would really help me out. And maybe what you learned from this episode can help someone else too. The views expressed in this episode are those of the interviewer and interviewee and don't represent the views of their employer or even their significant other. Even though the magic of podcasting make it sound like I'm talking directly to you, this is not a doctor-patient relationship and this is not medical advice or financial advice or really any advice. Thank us again for listening to The Physician's Guide to Doctoring.